So we do have the same notes as we did last time. I am the light of the world. Um, probably going to finish that today, I think, and we'll be moving on to the text. Um, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the light um, of your truth. And um, I, I've just been thinking about about these things. Um, in the next, in this chapter, we're we're looking at the the source of the light. Um, in the next chapter, we're going to see um, the source of healing to be able to see the light as well. And both things are important. If you, Father, if you never spoke to us. Bible says that you are invisible, no man has seen God any time. It doesn't just mean physically, <clears throat> it also means, especially means spiritually. Uh, we, we have no way to touch you. We have no way to get to know you. We have no way to hear you. We have no way to, to, to interact with you at any level except that you reveal yourself to us. And it is um, such a joy uh, and, and an amazing um, reality that you would do that, that you would bother to um, set your word down, your, your, your thoughts, your words down in plain language that we can access um, and, uh, that, and that even more so that you would come in human flesh and human nature and become one of us. As John says and marvels in his uh, epistle, first epistle, that we touched him and beheld him, and that we proclaim to you. And we thank you that uh, even today, still through through these words, through their testimony, now as we study, uh, that we can get to know you, and we can see you. Even though you're not here physically, we can see you, just like the man in chapter nine who was born blind saw you, not just physically, but especially spiritually. And we thank you, Father, for the glory, your glory, which we behold in the face of your dear Son. And I pray that today, as we uh, continue to look at this uh, truth of the light of the world and establishing the heavenly witness uh, in this text in John 8, that, that you would open our hearts and minds, uh, move me out of the way. I'm not important, but I pray that that, that your your words would come through uh, this reading and this study and this meditation here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. John 8, I do have a copy of the notes up here. Um, this is a fresh copy. It has a small addendum that I put on there. That's not super important. We'll get that here in just a minute. It's just a quote from Matthew 5, <clears throat> which I want to talk about in closing. Um, John 8 is in the middle of John 7 through 10, right? Remember John 7 through 10 takes place against the backdrop of which feast? Sunday school, not Sunday drool, right? Hey. <laughs> well, it's not tabernacles. It's not? <laughs> you know, selling classes and preparing them. You know, that's right. Yes, Feast of Tabernacles. I was going to. Oh, I, I meant to say that. Piece of tabernacles, right? And, and and there's a bunch of notes that precede this too, which which spell it out. You know, I put a little table together, all seven feasts that come out of Exodus uh, 23. Is it right? I'm sorry, not to, uh, Leviticus 23. Um, and so uh, this is the last feast on the calendar that God gave them, seven feasts, right? It's the last one. Um, and it, it comes in our calendar. <clears throat> it's interesting because it doesn't really come at the end of their year, even, even even though their year was a little different than ours. They had 360, I believe, days in their years, a lunar year, and every so often they add a leap month, okay? Um, as best I understand it. The calendars are very, very complicated uh, topic, but as best just kind of simplify it. That's the way it worked. I think it was every seven years they added a, a leap month, effectively. Anyway, point is, it didn't come at the at the end of their year either, but it came at the end of that that cycle of seven feasts that God gave them in the law. Okay, 
And, uh, and so there's, there's a lot of significance. I don't get into that here. We've already been over that quite a bit. Um, but this is on our calendar. This is in September, October. And this is the fall. The important thing to remember is that this is the fall of the year. In the spring, Christ is going to be crucified, right? So you're getting very, very, John has really fast forwarded through so much of his ministry. And as we slow down now, chapter seven forward to the rest of the end of the book, John has hit the play button. You know, he's been fast forwarding, you know, up to this point. We hit a few highlights, but now we're slowing down. And it's important to remember that because um, we're already beginning to see, we start on chapter seven, the the reactions to him are very mixed, right? And people are are beginning to sort of get isolated to one or the other. It's almost like separating water from oil. Um, his enemies are very clear. They, they watch everything he says. I said to you uh, last couple of times that it's almost his enemies, in a sense, uh, listened more carefully to him than his disciples. Uh, they paid very careful attention to him, and but it was not for the sake of, of gleaning everything they could, right? You know, you would hope that's what it was. Uh, but they listened to him very carefully to try to trap him in his words. They wanted to find something where he was wrong, and they could pin him to the wall and discredit him in the eyes of the public. That's why they're critical with him. Yes, right, right. Right, which is an interesting twist on things because we, we tend to think they'd sort of just hated Jesus and whatever and just sort of ignored him, but that's not true at all. They, they actually have some very, very penetrating questions and good responses based on what he said, a lot more so than his disciples. It seems like they, they loved him and they followed him, but they didn't quite catch on as quickly. That happens later after the Holy Spirit comes. Anyway, uh, and so we, we point is that chapter 7, we've seen... We've seen that. And now chapter 8 comes, and it begins to kind of back up a little bit. Uh, chapter 7 gives us a sort of synopsis of, of, of Jesus' arrival in the middle of this feast. Remember, it's the seven days plus a Sabbath at the end. So he arrives at some point in the middle point. He goes right to the temple, which was, his, which was his practice when he would come to Judea. He would go to the temple frequently through the, throughout the day and teach the people, right, and heal and other things. And so... Uh, it was not a mystery where you could find him when he was in town, for the most part. All right, so he's there, he's teaching. We have all of that in chapter 7. Then chapter 8 kind of goes back to some point in the feast again. So it's not really chronological, right? And this is important because chapter 8 and 9, and, and, then, the, and then spilling on into 10, which is just gorgeous. I mean, it, I am a good shepherd, I am a dwarf. That's all that happens as a foldover on top of 7. Right, so seven gives us sort of that synopsis, and then eight, nine, and ten, or at least half of ten, kind of fold back up. Does that make sense? It kind of slows down and, and recaps what was being said, and and some important, a really important event with the healing of the blind man, repercussions from that, and then how Jesus uses that to to warn, uh, to comfort his disciples, and to warn the shepherds of Israel. All right. So we are here now, now. As he is starting this seven, not, uh, sorry, eight, nine, and half to ten. Actually, all of ten, really, because it's a recap. These these three chapters. He's he's. It's kind of there's a lot in there. So much in there, right? And and we as we as his followers can glean a lot of comfort, particularly you know from from what he's going to say. But but the, the overarching tenor of all of this is a warning particularly to his enemies and to those who are sitting on the fence, okay? And as he is turning the light on, it's important right at the very beginning of all of what he's going to say and what's going to happen in these three chapters that he establishes credibility as a witness. And that's what's happening here with I am the light of the world. When he makes that, proclaim, that proclamation, what he's saying is, I am the truth. I am the source of truth that's, you know, so everything that I'm going to say to you is true, okay? And, of course, his enemies are arguing with him here, and that's what's going on in the text is they, they that's verse uh, 19. That's, um, let's pick that up. Well, let's, let's start with, um, let's start with 12. It's a quick recap on, on 12. And uh, I'm, I know I'm moving kind of fast, but this is ground we've already been over. And I, I just want to try to set the stage for us so that we, because context is so important, right? Uh, so verse 12, John 8, 12. <clears throat> Again, Jesus spoke to them 
saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, will have a light of light. Remember that this is the second of the seven sort of mountain peak I am statements. There are other I am statements, right? Uh, we're going to get to one right at the end of this chapter, John 8, 58, right? A very famous one. Uh, but it's not counted as one of the I am metaphors that are very distinctive about the Gospel of John. This is the second one, I am the light of the world. He's going to repeat this again in chapter 9. And so those two, the way I see it, it took me a while to see that, um, those two, I am the light of the world in chapter 8, and then I am the light of the world in chapter 9, are like bookends that, that sort of bracket a lot of what he's going to say and the important things, the important message he wants, particularly that warning that he's trying to get through to them, brackets that by starting at the beginning by saying I'm the light of the world and then at the end he recaps that by I'm the light of the world. As long as I'm in the world, you know, I am the light of the world. That's in chapter 9. Okay. Now, uh, there's a lot to say about that and we've spent some time. Remember, it's the Tetragrammaton, the name for God is, is wrapped up in that I am. Ego ami is very, it's in Greek, very, very unusual construction. Greeks usually said ego or ami. It's kind of like I, me, in a way. Um, okay? And and so that's that's what it is in the Greek New Testament. But it's the same reference to the name of God known as Yahweh or Jehovah. Okay? Those are different pronunciations for the same name. Uh, second thing is that's important here is, is this is, again, the backdrop of the Feast of Tabernacles, which commemorated the wilderness wanderings, the, right? The deliverance out of Egypt and how God led them through the wilderness. And so they followed the light, didn't they? They did. They followed a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. I don't think it changed form necessarily. It's just when the sun went down, you could see the illumination that was already there in the clouds the whole time. Um, <clears throat> so kind of maybe look like a big big giant lightsaber floating around in the sky at night, you know, or a neon fluorescent bulb like this or something. Um, they're trying to remember they don't have lights like we do now, electric lights that illuminate. So fire is the only thing that's sort of self-illuminating. You know, they could try to to um, to express that. And so that's the same kind of fire was in part of the question. Yeah, yeah, right, right. That's right. Right. Um, yes. Okay, so um, so when he says, he follows me, not walk in darkness, that's hard to mistake that imagery, right? You follow him, just like their ancestors followed the Lord out of Egypt, so we follow him now out of the darkness and deception of this war, right? Okay, and you can you can leave the deception by following Jesus, okay? So uh, that's, uh, so verse 13 then, um, and I, I, keep, I keep hearing it in my head this way, so I'm going to read it this way. So the disciple, I'm sorry, so the Pharisee said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Nanny, nanny, boo-boo. Okay. I, I, I only put it that way not to belittle them because they're very smart people, all right? They're not childish in that sense. But, but there is a childishness here in the sense of, uh, you know, we, we understand that little childish nursery rhyme way of saying, aha, I caught you, right? I caught you. Right? Gotcha. And that's what they're trying to do there in, that, in, in verse 13. They try again to discredit him. The other gospels tell us about many other occasions, right? And, and I forget which gospel it is now. One of them says that, that after that question, nobody dared ask him any more questions, right? Because <laughs> he was always, I mean, you, you're never going to best no, you're not. the mind no, of God. No, you're not. Right, you're never no. you're never going to best the mind of God. Um, it must have been really frustrating. It must also be, you know, Satan is is, uh, I believe, Scripture teaches as far as intelligence and and then insight and so forth. The angels um, have us, you know, they're they're smarter than we are. They know more. Uh, they can see more. They have they've been around a lot longer than we have too. Our little wives are just like this. You know, they're not infinite, but they've been around longer. <coughs> Satan is extremely bright. Um, but it must be really, really frustrating to be the opposition against. It's like sitting down across the chessboard from the grandmaster of all time. No matter what move you make, he uses that move against you and for the advancement of his own 
winning of a game. Must be really frustrating. And, and I'm sure these guys, too, the same way. <clears throat> that they were very, very frustrated at times trying to catch him. But here, but, but this is why I say that they listened to him a little more carefully, seems like, than his disciples did. Because, and we deal with that up in that paragraph up there, um, because they remember a year or so earlier, back in chapter 5, that Jesus said that, and, and that's quoted up there in that middle of that paragraph, I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true, or better translated, my witness is not valid. Okay, and then Jesus, in chapter 5, in front of them, unfolds four witnesses. You may remember that, and we looked at that, right? So, so it was John the Baptist, the scriptures, i.e. Moses as well, uh, the works that he does, and the Father, all bear witness to him. Okay, so they've, they've got plenty of witnesses, plus Jesus himself. What they're not saying by this, and this is, was a little confusing when I first read it, but when you read it in, in some of the English translations uh, and in his response back to them, which we'll see in a second, it makes it almost sound like a, like a, a, um, um, a, uh, a me, um, Fifth Amendment conundrum. You know what the Fifth Amendment? You know, when somebody says, I plead the Fifth, what do they mean? Can't be compelled to testify against yourself in a court of law. Right? But that's not what Jesus has in mind here, and that's not what they have in mind either. What they're saying is not that you, we can't trust your witness. What they're saying is that your witness, remember he's saying, I'm the light of the world. In other words, I'm about to give you a whole bunch of truth. I'm a witness to a whole bunch of truth I'm about to give you. And what they, before he even tells us what that truth is, they're coming along and saying, that's not valid. You can't, that, that, in other words, we would say it this way in our, in our, in our legal system, that evidence is not admissible. You can't come and testify about yourself like this and, and have us accept that as valid admissible evidence in a court case. Okay. That's the point, okay? It's not that witnessing against, you know, witnessing about yourself or saying things about yourself is not trustworthy. That's not it. It's it's, it's not admissible. So, does that make sense? Okay. And what they're doing is they're really, they paid attention back in chapter 5 when he said that, you know, if I bear witness about myself, <clears throat> my witness is not valid. So here he clarifies that again. Uh, <clears throat> now, remember, he had also referred back to that back in chapter 7. He had cast their minds back. We're going to talk about that here at the end. So chapter 5, again, is, is an important chapter in understanding everything that's happening here. Because okay? both Jesus and the Pharisees are going back to those events and talking about them further. Okay? All right. So um, the Pharisees trying to scram this, verse 13. Now Jesus establishes his credentials as the heavenly witness against them. And this is where we were last time and where we pick up now today. Um, verses 14 through 18. Jesus answered, even if I do witness about myself, my testimony is valid. Okay, same idea. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I came from. Where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true or valid. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is proper. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Okay? So he is clarifying now the point that was made back in chapter 5, because in chapter 5 that wasn't the focus then. In chapter 5, when he healed the man who was paralyzed and told him to pick up his whole campsite, and to, in other words, to carry more than he was supposed to carry, and travel further than he was supposed to travel on a Sabbath, okay? And they came back around later. What right do you have to, to, to do that, to tell somebody to disobey our traditions, our Sabbath? They wouldn't have said it that way. They, they thought that it was the Word of God, but they confused their traditions with the Word of God, right? Um, <clears throat> they got those blurred in their minds. That was very, it's deadly, really, to do that. Um, but anyway, 
uh, Jesus was, was much more interested then in, first of all, giving them the grand sweep of what God is doing, that he is working. I and my father are both working. Okay? So you guys are missing this point. First of all, if God's if God meant for us to not work on the Sabbath, like you're saying, then God is a is a lawbreaker himself. He's setting a bad example because he's working. And they had a real problem with that. Okay. So in other words, your interpretation of what it means not to work on the Sabbath is wrong. It's not what God intends at all. Right? Secondly, then he says, okay, here's what we're doing. Well, what, what, what do you mean your father's working, you're working? Well, there's this big plan. There's this massive plan that God is doing, right? We talk about this a lot here in the church. And, 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 and I'm, I'm, good morning, Diana. Uh, I think it's so important to remind ourselves that we're not just kind of here bouncing along through life and things kind of sort of happen. And, and maybe God is sort of, he's, he's almost detached and he's outside looking in and he kind of tweaks that right there. Maybe he like watching an ant farm or something, you know, or whatever. He just sort of picks up that ant, puts it over here, and maybe he pokes a little tunnel or he pours more sand in over there or something. But by and large, he's, that's not the way it is at all. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit have started a plan. They planned it, first of all, and turned it past, right? Created the stage on which it's to be played out. And now it's unfolding. And so the idea of God as creator doesn't just mean that he made everything back way back when. Um, but that he sustains it as well. So that you literally, you and I literally are part of this ongoing sort of repercussions like ripples in a pond from that initial point of creation. We're continuing. We're just part of his unfolding of this plan. It's like he's, he's just continues to, to create this plan and sustain it, right? It's like a, like a writer, a script writer, a director, and a star of a movie. You know, and, and director... When, it's, when it gets the movie in the cutting cutting room, you can see the whole movie from start to finish, right? And every frame in there. Amazing. You think about how many tiny little moments of time God is the master of and has control of and has unfolded everything. Astounding. Anyway, um, so I don't know where I was going with all of that, but um, here, here he is. Oh, I know what it was. So back in Chapter 5, because Chapter 5 is so important what's being said now, okay? Chapter 5, Jesus steps back and says, okay, I and the Father are working. Well, what are you doing, Jesus? What are you and the Father doing? Here's what we're doing. Phase 1, salvation. Okay, All who are in the tombs will hear the, uh, the voice of the Son of God. A time is coming, now is, when all who are in the tombs will hear or not in the tombs. When the dead, sorry, the way he phrases is important. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear the word. That is salvation. Time is time's coming, and now it's it started then, and continues now. And that's the first resurrection. That's really salvation as we know it now. There's people hearing, there are some people who hear the call of God. And when they hear that, they receive life. And from that point on, it, we're going to see this again in chapter 11, where he goes back and recaps that in, in one little phrase where he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in why the resurrection and the life, why the repeat? Because he's first the life, and then he'll be the resurrection. So he's first your spiritual life, and then later comes phase two, the resurrection. Everybody will be raised in the second phase, which is the phase of judgment, the phase of separation for eternity. Anyway, so that's all chapter five, and then he gives them those four witnesses. Okay, so now here though he's he's already come back and he's he's revisited this concept of what it means to work on the Sabbath. And now he turns it around instead of saying, you know, God is working on the Sabbath and here's what we're doing. In chapter seven, he came back to them and said, stop judging by appearances. In other words, you guys need to need to put your priorities where it matters. Okay. And we'll talk about that more in a minute because that's the very end of, of our outline here. Where the Pharisees judge by appearance. What he's saying here is, um, That, that that phrase that you think you've trapped me with that I did say back then is not exactly what you think it is, okay? I'm not, and even though, I mean, they did listen, but they forgot maybe <laughs> that he spelled out for them back in chapter 5, four other witnesses, okay? If you don't believe me, believe the works, he's going to say, all right? That's coming up too. 
you don't, you don't like that, me huh? personally, okay? You don't like my personality or something, whatever it is. Believe the works. They should have. They should have known that. In the court of, like you said, in the court of law, you can't just have one witness. You've got to have that concern with these two or three witnesses. That's right. It's always the case. It's always the case, right? So, but he comes back here, and he says, "No, no, you didn't catch me, <clears throat> in and you didn't trap me here like you think you did." Now look at the strange answer he gives him in verse 14. Even if I do <laughs> bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. It's valid. For I know where I came from where I'm going, but you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. What, what kind of answer is that? Well, if, if that's all he said, if it's period, end quote, and we'll go on to something else, we really be kind of – there's enough there, though, that we, we know what he's talking about. But he the, the rest of the verses do explain, Okay. But where is he coming from? We looked at this last time, right? We went back to chapter 3. Second half, chapter 3 has got two halves to it, right? First half is the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes at night, and you saw that. And, and right at the end, Jesus says, we bear witness. We're a testimony. Uh, and no one believes our witness, right? Men love darkness rather than light. Their deeds are evil. And then the second half of chapter 3, which is not as well known, is the story of, of John the Baptist's uh, uh, disciples, expressing their envy of Jesus's growing ministry. And John the Baptist effectively comes and says, guys, I'm just a heavenly witness. And, and I can't claim credit for any kind of power or validity uh, or spiritual profit in my ministry. That's effectively what he's saying to them. A man can receive nothing except he gets it from, from above, right? I'm just, I'm the earthly witness. I, all I can give you is my best understanding from a human perspective. But this one that you're criticizing and you're so worried about his ministry growing and mine decreasing, he's the heavenly witness. And you, you yourselves are my witness. I, I said I'm not the Christ. He's the Christ. I keep pointing you guys in his direction, you know. Right, so there's a lot going on in that chapter, but the point I'm trying to make or draw out of that is that what John the Baptist is saying there and telling us is that Jesus is that heavenly witness. He came from the Father. There's a lot of people that say, God said this, or God told me that, right? How do you know? Well, you've seen God? Did you hear him? How do you know it was him? Maybe it was the devil. Maybe you just had... Too much to drink. Maybe you're just lying. You know, there's a lot of explanations for that. It's hard to argue with somebody, though, who answers perfectly, has such authority and power, is never trapped in his words, and his words carry power to heal and to calm storms and to create bread and fish from nothing. Right? And, as we're going to see in chapter 11, the coup de grace raises the dead. Somebody who, John says it over and over again, both in 11 and 12, over and over and over and over and over again. He makes this point repeatedly, just, just like hammering the nail, even though it's, okay, John, the nail's already in there. No, I'll keep hammering. He's hammering the point. What's the point? Lazarus was dead, and Jesus raised him. There is no argument about that. No wiggle room, okay? How do you argue with somebody who has that kind of power in his words? Right? He must be true. And what Jesus is saying here, what he's doing in that verse, verse 14, is he's appealing to his, his source, my father. I came from my father. Okay, he's going to say that here in a minute, right? What's that got to do with answering their question? Very simply, he tells us. Okay, let's keep reading. But no, notice that too. Um, that's kind of a, a sad commentary that he makes on them. And actually, this is this is the beginning of his witness, actually, really, right here. He's going to really shed light on this here in a, in a minute, um, a little bit later in the text. But you do not know where I came from and where I'm going. He's going to unfold what that means. Because, you see, they thought they had God nailed to the wall. They, they thought they were on board with him. They were following him, and he was confirming them and their system and everything. And what he's actually saying here is, no, uh-uh, no. You guys claim to speak for God, but you're not. He's going to say here in a little bit, in, later on in that chapter, you are not of God like you think you are. You're not of Abraham like you think you are. 
You are of your father who? Yeah. I came from the father. I know what he said. I was there when he created this plan and hatched it. And I agreed to it. And I am I am a full participant in it. Okay. So my testimony is valid. Okay. It is it is valid. Why? Because I'm not the only one saying it. The father is saying it too. Okay. What's interesting is they only heard the father one time actually say that. When we get there in chapter 12, there's there's another occasion in which the father actually audibly speaks himself in Jesus' ministry. That's recorded. Okay. And that's coming. But anyway, verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. By that, well, uh, we'll talk about that here at the end, okay? Because I want to come back and revisit this. What does it mean by judge according to the flesh? And I judge no one. Uh, Jesus did, did, did tell them again, chapter five is really important for this. This is a resumption of what was happening in chapter five. In chapter five, we find out that all judgment has been committed from the Father to the Son, okay. But what Jesus explains in chapter 5 is there's two phases to this, the first coming and the second coming, right? The first time he comes, he comes with the role of witness and Savior. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He comes as the Lamb, okay? There's a second, there's a time in the future when he's going to put on the role of the Lion, okay? And that's when he will be the judge. Very interesting. These are some, there's some strong words for us now, too. We, we, like, we are told to be like Christ, right? What does that mean? It means a lot of things. But this in the area when it comes to judgment, and this is something I'm being convicted of more and more here. I have to be very careful because I, I really like to judge people. You do, too, right? And we not like me. to excuse ourselves and judge others. Yeah. Right? No, not me. Not me. <laughs> Only no, you. We do. We do that. I agree with you. I don't judge others. You do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a serious topic, so we can yeah. make light about it. But you know what? Not even Jesus came. And, and that's what we saw. That's what he said. Remember what he said in chapter 3, John 3.16, right? Most famous verse in the Bible. What does it say after that? God sent not his son into the world to yeah. condemn the world. But the world through him might be saved, right? In chapter 12, he's going to say... If anyone doesn't believe me, it's so straightforward. You read, read chapter 12. If anyone doesn't believe me, I don't condemn them. That's really surprising. But he has that which condemns him, the word that I've spoken. Right? So in other words, these are not my words. You know, I, I'm not here. I'm not here yet with the judge hat and robes on. I'm here with the witness and and the savior, the the He's here to be God's um, witness to them and then to go to the cross to atone for the sins of his people. Okay? And so when he says that here, I judge no one. I, I think that's it's pretty clear given the whole context of, of what John is, what the gospel is saying. Here's what he's saying. Yet, verse 16, even if I do judge, my judgment is valid. For it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. Okay? So when he says in verse 14, for I know where I came from, well, where did he come from? Father, right? He came from heaven. Where's the Father? Well, in heaven, right? So that's what, that, again, that's what he makes it very clear in chapter, in verse 16 there. Very plain, not inaccessible. Um, it's just to, just to tell them, look, it's not. It's not me alone. I'm not the one saying this by myself. My father's saying it also. Don't miss that because the term father means a progenitor, right? A source, an origin. Um, you talk about your parents. They are the ones physically responsible. Of course, God ultimately is really you know, the psalmist says that, you know, your, your eyes saw my unformed substance when I was still in my mother's 
deeper parts of the womb, right? Um, I had, I, that Psalm has led me to believe, I used to kind of think God uniquely created Adam and Eve's bodies in the garden, and then everybody else is sort of just, you know, the natural way kind of thing. But what that Psalm is really telling us is the means may have changed. God didn't form all of us from the ground, you know, but he did form the body specifically and individually that you inhabit for you. Each body, he, he, he created your body with the same specific specificity and care and, and preciseness that he did Adam and Eve. Very interesting, okay? And so he is in charge um, of, of, of these things. Jesus himself came. He had a body prepared for him, right? Same way um, by the Spirit. And he has come to, to give his life. Uh, he's come from the Father. Well, the Father is the progenitor. The Father is, and, and we have to be careful because it's not that Jesus was created by the Father, but there comes a, there came a point in time, let's try to explain this, um, outside of time, there came a point in which the Father and the Son said, okay, from this point on, I'm going to be the Father and you're going to be the Son. Okay? And they took on these roles to work together in cooperation with each other as part of this grand plan that God is doing. All right? And so that's what he says here. The Father's the progenitor in the sense that he is the one who commissions the Son. And not only, not only does the Son commissioned by the Father to go and do this work on behalf of the Father, but the Son is the exact image of the Father, right? Okay, like it or not, I am like my Father. Okay, you also, or and your mother, you know, your mother and your father. Don't get hung up on, you know, it's not a sexism thing. It's a, it's a progenitor thing, right? Um, and so, it, it's so the, what God is trying to do is put it in human terms that we can understand. That the son came from the father as a point of origin. The father is the one who sent him, commissioned him to come and to be this witness, to, to go to the cross. And it says in Isaiah that it pleased God to bruise him. In other words, the father didn't delight in crushing his son, no. but it satisfied his justice to do, to do so. It's his plan to do so. Father, if it's your will, there's another way that this cup passed from me, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And, and so there was no other way than for them to do this. And Jesus, like, like Isaac, willingly surrendered or submitted to Abraham. Abraham was an old man. Isaac was a strapping young man, could have easily overpowered his father, but he surrendered to Abraham, right? There's so much imagery there in that story. Anyway, even if I do judge my judgments, for I, I and the Father, I, it's not I alone who judge, <clears throat> but I am the Father who sent me. In your law is written the testimony of two people is valid. I just give you the two, me and the Father, both saying the same thing. Okay. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. <clears throat> We have one minute. Uh, let's look at verse at uh, point four in your outlines. Let's see what the responses are. There's only two verses here. Verse 19. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? <laughs> My Bible has that capital F there. Okay, where is your father? And I, I can just imagine the translators arguing over whether they should capitalize that F or not. I argued with myself about that. I kind of am of the opinion that it ought to be a little F. Because I don't believe that these guys, to be careful about this, because they did, they did back in chapter 5 uh, pick up when he said, my father, they knew that he was claiming to be God. But here, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, th I think there may be some confusion on their part here. Uh, I think some of them understand what he means by that. But then there's confusion later on. I say that it's, it's hard to explain right now without reading the rest of 
the chapter, okay? But they get it. What this does is this launches an kind of a, an argument, uh, for lack of a better word, a discussion, a dialogue that Jesus has with them about their father versus his father, their origin versus his, right? Who they were acting like rather than who versus who he was acting like. Okay? And so what he says to them in in response to this, in, in the rest of verse 19 there, Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. You don't get it. You're not really on board yet. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury, he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Okay. Um, back up to verse 15. Look at what he's already told them. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. So that's why I think that they were they were kind of on him at this point about his physical origin. Okay? They're talking about his earthly father. Talking about his earthly father. Talking about his earthly father. And this is not this is not out of step with the rest of what we've already seen too. Remember back in chapter six, same kind of concept there where he said, I am the bread from heaven. And they're like, well, wait a minute, how can you be from heaven? We know where you're from. You're from, and this was way up in Galilee, right? So they're they're literally like right down the road from his hometown. And they start getting into this argument with him about, well, we know you're you're just Joseph and Mary's son. Brothers are here with us, right? They get into this this whole this whole fleshly viewpoint. Well, what what does he mean by saying you judge according to the flesh? Let's take a quick look. There's a lot of texts there. <clears throat> Let's look back uh, for a second at uh, 724, that's on your notes there. He's already told them, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. When you read about all that, he, he says, um, I made one man uh, uh, well on the Sabbath, and you criticized me, but you guys circumcised a baby, on the, a man on the Sabbath, right? Uh, in order to you may not break the law of Moses. I mean, we look at that and we're like, but they were they hadn't really thought that through. Okay. I mean, how can you what Jesus is saying is look, you're concerned about one little mark on a, a, a mark of of of, of uh, covenant on one little baby, but I made the whole man well on the Sabbath. Why is it okay for you to, to just circumcise a baby on the Sabbath? It's not okay for me to make a man well who's been in that condition for 38 years. Stop judging by appearances. The flesh, right? In other words, stop judging by what you see out here in this temporal world and realm and trying to make sense of it like this. This is a little bit like King Solomon in Ecclesiastes, trying to make sense of life under the sun purely from the viewpoint here, you can't do it. He couldn't do it. The wisest man who ever lived apart from the Lord. Okay. So he's already criticized. Let's look at one more text and you can write this down real quick and then we'll finish with this. There you go. Right. Paul is really going to explain this for us even further. Okay. And that's good. That's a good trend. Is that uh, New Living? I'm more and more impressed with the New Living. I like the Proverbs in that. I have, I have a New Testament in Proverbs and Psalms. Yeah, that's good. Um, so just real quick, uh, we'll close with this. 2 Corinthians uh, 5, 12 through 16. Now, everybody's familiar with 2 Corinthians 5, 17, right? Anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away, all things are new. Verse 21, so, so seminal, so powerful. Verse 21, right at the end of the chapter, you know, that that um, that God made him who knew no sin be sin for us. We might be the righteousness of God in Christ. What about the verses that come immediately before that? That's what these are, okay? Verse 12, 2 Corinthians 5. Paul's talking, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not, now listen, 
not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, in other words, if we're crazy, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have this, we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. In other words, all who are in Christ have died with him. Uh, and we died, and he died for all, that those who might who live, now watch this, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who raised, uh, uh, him who for their sake died and was raised. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. What is Paul saying? Simply this. When you come into Christ and you're buried with him, you're united with him in his death and in his resurrection, you leave the old perspective behind. You stop thinking like you did before. Every, the, reason, the reason that the people you're trying to witness to don't get it is that they're still in the flesh. They still see, they still judge by appearances. They can only judge and measure things by what they see in this world. But the Bible tells us that the things in this world are perishing. But the things which last forever are unseen, right? And it's only when your eyes of faith are opened. <clears throat> You've heard of blind faith? That's a contradiction, at least biblical faith. There's no such thing as blind faith. Blindness and faith are opposites. You can't have faith until your eyes are open. And then when your eyes are open, faith is the ability to see it. And the perspective and the ch and the change that God brings into your and the light comes on. We're going to see that in chapter nine, right? When He heals the man who is born blind, and the man's not only his physical eyes are open, but more importantly, his eyes of faith are open. And by the end of that chapter, he's worshiping Jesus. Wow. Okay. So so key, so important. What what Paul is saying here is simply this: We judge that one that one died and then died. You know, all who are in Christ have died as well. In other words, we have died to that old way of thinking. We have left that. It, we're dead to that old way of thinking. And we judge no one now according to the flesh. We judge Christ according to the flesh at one time. It didn't make sense to me either at one time, Paul saying, right? I, I, I persecuted the church. I was I hated Christ. I didn't want anything to do with him. But then when my, the irony of Paul's testimony, right? He was made blind physically, right? So that he could be open spiritually. His eyes could be open spiritually. Those three days in which he fasted, he didn't do that voluntarily. He couldn't keep anything down. He didn't want anything. He was grappling with finally seeing the truth of God. All the things he thought he knew all those years being torn down and destroyed and devastated. And in its place, Christ is being rebuilt. And all his knowledge of scriptures, beginning the Holy Spirit, beginning to assimilate, pull together. And, and, and he just spent those three days just, wow. I mean, just in total shock. I've been wrong the whole time, right? His eyes were open. And then Ananias came and opened his physical eyes later. Paul is saying we regard no one that way anymore. Stop judging people according to the flesh. How do we apply this? Um, and this is the addendum. This is on the back of those notes there. And if you want to write it down, John, I'm sorry, Matthew 5. Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. This is 13 through 16. The salt has lost its taste. How can it be? How can saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. They would use the, the that's a whole other topic. They would use the, the salt that had been so diluted by the minerals in this Dead Sea area. You can't just scrape salt off the Dead Sea and use it on your food. It's got so many other minerals in it. Um, so they would use that to put on, on paths and keep them free of weeds. Okay, But it was not good for, you know, it's not good pure salt. But then here's the point. This is still Matthew 5. This is, this is right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, by the way. You are the light of the world. And he's talking about kingdom citizens here. He's talking about people who are walking and following him. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put a lamp, a light under 
nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand that gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. They may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, but then here he says, you are the light of the world. We are called to be like Christ in this, right? Um, how can you be a light to the world? How can you tell people what really matters when you're judging by our appearances? I think that's the battle for us. That's when our, our light gets dim, our testimony gets dim. Jesus was, was the perfectly perfect heavenly witness, right? But we're called to be witnesses too. And to do that, you've got to stop judging by appearances. You don't know what's going on in somebody's heart. You really don't. I don't either. I really don't. And I like to think I do. The Lord convicted me some years ago about trying to read his mind, trying to suppose that I understand what he's, oh, i got secret insight now. I don't. I really don't. Right? Father, so much here. I know we've kind of blasted through this text and, and there's so much more to come. But I pray you would take these words and work them into our hearts. And Father, I, I, I'm up here talking about things that feel like a, a child tinkering with an atomic weapon or a really, really super advanced computer that is so complicated that I don't understand. And yet there's there are things we can't understand. We certainly know what it's like to judge people by the flesh, by outward appearances. We do it all the time. That person's ugly. That person's stupid. That person's really smart. Look how smart they are. They talk with an English accent or something. They speak the big words. And we get impressed when we shouldn't be impressed, and we're, we look down on people when we shouldn't. All you've told us to do is to love others with the same love with which you loved us. And we know that you've loved the world, and you are calling people out of the world to yourself. We don't know who they are. Forgive us for trying to second-guess you. And help us to be those lights also in the world and to not judge by appearances. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.